0: This episode of Investing Compass is brought to you by Milford.
1: Milford's talented and globally experienced investment team aim to deliver strong, long-term returns while managing downside risks. They also invest in the same funds as their clients. Learn more and see the Milford Fund's product disclosure statements and target market determinations at milfordasset.com.au.
0: Welcome to Investing Compass. Before we begin, a quick note that the information contained in this podcast is general in nature. It does not take into consideration your personal situation, circumstances, or needs.
1: The market is full of predictions. Economists, market commentators, punters. These predictions can come through RBA speeches, or a tweet from BitDoctor1 on Twitter, who believes that many traders have found success using lunar cycles to predict market movements especially during full moons when volatility is high. Seems like everyone knows what's going to happen with the market and when it's going to happen.
0: Ultimately, predictions make for good stories and entertaining investing content. But as we've said before, a good story doesn't make a good investment.
1: And it reinforces the notion that successful investors are nimble investors that are always adjusting their portfolios based on current conditions. We strongly disagree with that. That leads to overtrading and higher fees and taxes. And the problem with these one time predictions is that they don't take your personal circumstances into account, and you have no idea if these professional investors are even adjusting their portfolios or to what degree.
0: Some predictions are based on a gut feeling or a lunar cycle, others are based on trends. Trends are extrapolating data and occurrences into the future based on observations and evidence. Sales trends, consumer trends, spending trends, these are all trends that are inputs into analysts' models and allow analysts to estimate future earnings and assign a value to a
1: share. And that leads to our next guest, Brian. So Brian Hahn is a Director of Equity Research at Morningstar Australia. We spoke briefly about him in our Stage 3 Tax Cuts episode. He was the one that we talked about being a comedian and being on our equity research team.
0: Brian's coverage includes Telstra, Flight Center, News Corp, and Nine Entertainment. As well as his stock coverage, Brian writes a column for Morningstar Investor called Brian Storm and is a regular guest on our analyst Q&A webinars and our analyst cafes at our conference.
1: In November, Brian put out four predictions for 2023. These predictions were based on analysis and trends that he thought would continue to play out into the next year.
0: For today's episode, we're putting Brian on the spot. It's very easy to make predictions when there are no repercussions and you're never held to account on the calls that you've made. So we're doing a half yearly check-in on these predictions to see whether these trends have continued into 2023 and what they mean for investors and investments.
1: So our next guest on Investing Compass is Brian Hahn, and Brian is a director of equity research here at Morningstar and one of our most popular analysts. And recently, I was at a conference. I was at the Australian Shareholders Conference, and somebody came up to our booth and was talking about you and was talking about how great your writing is, which we're going to talk about today. But first, maybe if you could just give a little bit of a background, your background at Morningstar, what you cover, whatever you would like to say about yourself.
2: Sure, Mark, and uh, thanks for having me on today. So I'm part of a 15-analyst-strong team based in Sydney, and we cover just under 200 stocks across ASX and New Zealand Exchange. And me specifically, I cover the telecom sector, which includes Telstra and TPG Telecom. I cover the media sector, which includes News Corporation and Nine Entertainment. And I also cover the leisure sector, which includes um, companies like Flight Centre and Webjet. Now, on top of that, I publish a regular report called The Brindstorm, which um, sort of uh, looks into various issues that impacts across the market. And the rest of the time, I try to um, spend talking to clients and uh, get myself invited on preeminent podcasts like this one.
1: Well, exactly. Well, there you go. This must be the feather in your cap of your career so far.
2: That is true, Mark. I heard that um, your numbers um, rival those of uh, Tim Ferriss and Joe Rogan, so I'm honored. I'm honored to be.
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. Absolutely. So you mentioned Brian Storm, and that, of course, is the series of articles you put out periodically. And we were chatting before this. You put one out, saying your four fearless predictions for 2023. And a lot of times, people write things and then nobody ever calls them on their predictions. So you said you were fearless in making these, and today we are actually going to talk about them.
2: Yeah. I'm fearful now, but let's, let's
1: do it. Yeah. But at the time you wrote it, you were fearless. So Let's talk about this. We want to understand if you still are backing up these predictions that you made. And we'll just go through them one by one. So the first one you made, the first of the four fearless predictions was M&A goes away. So you talked about layoffs at investment banks and M&A volume plummeting as the cost of money rises, of course, as we've seen interest rates go up. So what do you think so far? Did that, uh, did that prediction come true? What, what have you seen around that?
2: That prediction is well and truly panning out this year so far. So, so far, if you look at global um, value of global M&As this year to date, it's down about 60% uh, compared to the um, same period last year. Investment banking fees in Australia is down almost 70%. Was down in the first quarter? And it continues to go down. And as most of the audience members will know, uh, Credit Suisse has been shut down, taken out by UBS. We had a couple of uh, bank failures in the US. And we have investment bankers being laid off left, right and center. And I know because a lot of these investment bankers are my friends and acquaintances. And all of a sudden I'm getting calls from them, you know, asking for drinks and are saying hi which is funny because I'm married with two kids, so I don't have time to have drinks and say hi. But that's the state of the land right now, and uh, it's not pretty.
1: Okay. Well, you can you can tell them that I'm available. I have no kids, so I always have time for drinks. But a little bit of a follow-up question. So M&A, so mergers and acquisitions in general. So in some cases, this can be transformative for a business. And- a lot of the time, it could also be, or a lot of time, it is a huge failure for a lot of business. So something that management, of course, likes to do. But let's talk about how this impacts investors. And you know, a lot of times, what we see is we do see, of course, with all of these deals, they're paying a huge markup over what something was trading for. And I guess that's good if you hold uh, if you hold shares in that company that's being acquired. But how about for the company that's actually acquiring people? Is this something that in general, as an equity analyst, you see this as a constructive thing to do, or is this something that destroys shareholder value?
2: Well, Mark, when you think about it, it it really doesn't matter what I think. What I can say is a lot of very smart people from very um, prestigious and smart cookie institutions have proven over and over again with research, with hard data, to show that most M&As destroy value rather than enhancing shareholder value. So that's one thing to say. And the second thing to say is all M&As, they mean well. You know, you acquire something to rationalize the industry, to get scale quickly, to open up new growth avenues. But when you dig a little bit deeper, you'll see that the motivations for doing M&A, they're usually quite warped. Because for a CEO or a chairman, you get paid more for running bigger companies. That's a simple fact. Secondly, some CEOs want to do acquisitions to hide the fact that they're not running their existing businesses very well. And then there are instances where you are running your business really well, and you get this sense of hubris that you can replicate this effort in other areas, in other countries. So... And then finally, there is this mentality that um, don't just sit there, do something. So, and investment bankers are especially good at whispering those words in the ears of chairmen and CEOs. So when you look at it from that incentive motivation context, you can see why people continue to do M&As, even though scientific well research studies have shown that they destroy value more often than not. So that's that's what I would say and the frustrating thing is as a CEO or a chairman or the board you have nothing to lose to do M&A because if you do well if the acquisition goes well you get rewarded very handsomely but if the acquisition does not go well invariably as a CEO you still do well whatever redundancy package you get is still quite substantial so it's a matter of basically a matter of heads I win, tails you lose. And it's that asymmetric sort of re- risk-return equation that frustrates a lot of investors in the market.
1: Okay, so good intentions and a lot of bad outcomes.
2: Yeah, because those good intentions are warped with a lot of underlying motivations that you can't point to in a spreadsheet, but it's real reasons, real rationale for yeah. doing M&As.
1: It's, it's a lot like when I go out for drinks good intentions, and bad outcomes, as your friends will soon experience as soon as you send them over my way. Want to give your portfolio an offensive and defensive strategy? Check out the award-winning Milford Australian Absolute Growth Fund.
0: Utilizing the skills of Milford's experienced investment team, the Milford Australian Absolute Growth Fund has been focusing on delivering a smoother journey for investors for over half a decade.
1: With an emphasis on managing risk and generating absolute returns, This lower volatility equity fund can play a key role in a diversified portfolio. The fund strives for long-term capital growth while mitigating the ups and downs typically experienced when investing in share markets.
0: Find the Milford Australian Absolute Growth Fund, ticker symbol MFOA, on your trading platforms or at milfordasset.com.au.
1: And before you invest, be sure to read the fund's product disclosure statement and target market determination, also found at milfordasset.com.au. We're going to move on to the second of your four fearless predictions, and it is crypto dominates Oscar, Pulitzer, Emmy, and Grammy. So this is a prediction around speculative crypto and the collapse we saw in price towards the end of 2023. And really what this is about is you were calling out that it's an unbelievable story that's played out in front of our eyes. And it's going in the same direction as the big short or money ball. So could you give a short ex- explainer of this prediction and whether it's going in the right direction halfway through the year or not?
2: Well, Mark, um, I think a lot of people who invest in cryptos would uh, love to hear me say this, but it's not going well. So for instance, Bitcoin, I believe the price is up about 70% this year so far. but but it is still down more than half from November 21 peaks. So that is precisely the point that I'm trying to make. I can't tell the difference between cryptocurrencies and all the other financial bubble stuff that we have seen in history. And that's on me because, you know, when you you get older, all that innocence, that that wonder, that, that mindset to only see the potential upside the life-changing upside, that sort of dies off as you get older. And in that old and cranky state, what I see is I ask myself, what is the difference between a Bitcoin and, say, a tulip in the 1600s or the South Sea Company in the 1700s or the Japanese stock market and housing bubble in the 80s or the dot-com boom in the 90s or the US housing bubble in the 2000s and all the other crap that's happened in between. So all those bubbles, when you think about it, they were justifiable at that time. But in hindsight, when you look at it, you realize that they weren't based on any fundamental rational backing. So that's the risk that we have. Um, And now cryptocurrency may well be a game changer in terms of being the digital currency in the new web 3.0 world and decentralized system, and all that. But I think we just have to um, recognize that right now, it, it still seems to be a plaything of mainly speculators and colorful characters, if you get my drift.
1: Okay. And speaking of colorful characters, a big crypto investor is Will, the producer of this podcast. So you're slowly killing Will.
2: No, no, he's a true believer. So um he he lectures me all the time about it. So I'm learning from him as much as I'm learning from myself, from my old cranky um self. <laughs>
1: well that is well that is good. So, you know, do you have any advice that you would give maybe contrarian crypto investors who jumped in when we had these depressed prices at the end of last year?
2: Yeah, Mark, the only thing I'll say is um just be very honest about why you're buying crypto. So are you buying it because it's down so much from its peak and therefore it must be cheap? Is that the question? Or are you buying it because you know what the fundamental price is at which point you're willing to sell? Or because there are some scientific reasons to suggest that the probability of these digital currencies becoming the norm is greater than not becoming the norm. But just remember, These currencies right now, as they stand, they have no central bank backing. So it is real frontier wild stuff that you're betting on. So just be honest why you are buying this. And um, it's like when I, I do a lot of sports betting. And I tell my wife, honey, it's not gambling because I know what I'm doing. I know the sports teams. I know the stats. And it's really an investment, a form of investment. And then my wife and I will look at each other and we'll sort of smirk. And we all know what we're both thinking. I am gambling. But she tolerates it, not because she believes that I know tigers can cover a 6.5 point spread and I have some sort of inside information. She tolerates it because I don't risk any of our main wealth or our kids savings on it. And I think that's the attitude that people should take with crypto.
1: And also some good marital advice as well. Toleration is key to a successful long marriage.
2: Oh, tell me about it. Yeah.
1: <laughs> maybe maybe we'll have you back on. We can do four fearless predictions about marriage.
2: No, don't do that. That'll be, that'll be all wrong.
1: <laughs> okay. Let's move on to your uh, your third prediction. Cybersecurity surges to the top of shareholder minds. And, of course, we've all seen all of the stories about hacks and leaks and security breaches, and it's resulted in hundreds of thousands of people just here in Australia having their private information get compromised. So I guess give a bit of an overview of that prediction and how you think this hyper-awareness of cybersecurity impacts companies in your coverage, because certainly we've seen some in the telecom sector, and – we can talk about Telstra, maybe, because I know you love talking about Telstra.
2: Yeah, so this is the prediction that I'm probably most comfortable with, but at the same time, um, most scared about, because I believe that we as human beings are giving up too much information in this digital world. Uh, some, we are giving up voluntarily to get things like home loans, credit cards, and you know all those, all those kind of things. But some, we don't even realize that we're giving up through our browsing habits and purchasing um, habits and all of that. And so once we give up those information in this hyperconnected world and it's out in a digitized form in that etherland, it is basically technically accessible to anyone. Then it becomes a battle between those companies who have your data and they're trying to protect them and those other people who try to get access to those data to, for whatever reason, monetary or otherwise. And so that's the battle. And in that battle, I always think that the hackers have the upper hand. I say that because they are smarter, they are more resourceful, they are more motivated, and they are less encumbered by rules, laws, or whatever it is. And they are nomadic and they are faceless. You can't even catch them. You don't even know where they are. So that is the reason why I think security measures and investments in cybersecurity will continue to increase, simply because there will be more cyber hacks as we um, go through this um, digital transformation of the whole society. And I'll give you some data. Like last um, financial year ending June 2022, there was a cyber crime committed every seven minutes. And I'm willing to bet that that has probably increased this year and will continue to increase. So what does that mean for um, companies? So as I said, I think there will be increasing investment in cybersecurity. Last week, in fact, the federal government set aside about $102 million to protect its own digital infrastructure and to help small businesses protect them against cyber hacks. I think all companies will do similar things this year and next, and those investments will continue to increase. In fact, Mark, I know um, in telco land especially that companies are employing hackers to hack into their systems so that they can learn from them. And for those audience members out there, um, if you ever have kids come up to you and say, what should I do at uni? I think cybersecurity will be a pretty good option to look into. So I think hacks will be inevitable. There will be continuing um, investments to um, prevent those hacks, but there will be even more investments into mitigating the damage after your system has been hacked into. And that means creating a second line of defense or come up with a system where you can destroy customer data as quickly as possible so that even if it gets hacked into, they won't get compromised. So at the end of the day, I think... I mean, companies go on and on about ESG and all of those that kind of stuff, and that's very important. But at ground zero, I truly believe that what keeps CEOs awake at night is not some iceberg melting a millimeter overnight 2,000 miles away. It's this fear that next morning you wake up and you find that your company system has been hacked into. So it is a real big issue. And that is why whenever you hear these um, cyber attacks publicized in the newspapers, you don't see competitors. For example, when Optus got hacked into, you didn't hear a peep from Telstra or Vodafone saying, that. oh, come to us, you know, we manage our data better because they all know it could happen to anybody. And hence, I think those investments in cybersecurity will continue to um, escalate.
1: So as, from a company perspective, this is just a cost, an ongoing cost obviously to try to prevent this and then there's the huge reputational damage if it happens are there any investment opportunities a lot of people think okay well i guess i can go out and invest in some of these security firms
2: yes um in australia there's um there's really shortage of um like directly relevant investments that you can um leverage off but in the us you do have several cybersecurity firms um the names don't really come to me in terms of the listed company names, but there are more opportunities um, in the US and Europe targeting those cybersecurity investments than in Australia. In Australia, you might say, oh, Telstra invests in um, cybersecurity. Maybe we can invest in that. But the contribution to earnings is so small, you probably will not move the noodle.
1: Okay, we're going to move on to your fourth and last fearless prediction. So the backlash against digital tech and the resurg- resurgence of dumb tech. So, your last prediction talks about the move away from social media. And, you know, I think as a society, we've spoken a lot about how addictive social media is. And we even have a moat dedicated to it a little bit the network effect. So, why do you predict that people are moving away from digital tech? And has this played out in the first half of the year?
2: I must say, Mark, um, that's probably the one prediction that I'm least confident about. And I think it's more of a hope than a prediction that we think about and be more intentional about the amount of time that we spend on digital technology and social media. And I I am as guilty as anyone. And uh, But in answer to your question, no, the prediction is not um, not panning out at all. In fact, it's going the opposite. I mean, you look around, most of the time everybody's on some sort of a digital media. Next time you catch the train, just look up and you'll never see another person staring back at you daydreaming because everybody's on their screen. And I do, I do think about how much of our lives has been hijacked in terms of focus and attention span and the consequences of that manifesting in envy, anxiety and misery. So that that was basically the genesis of that prediction, which is more of a hope. And we just need to be um, really conscious about the financial cost of digital technology in terms of cybersecurity that we spoke about, in terms of privacy. But we also need to be aware of the human cost of digital media in terms of lost attention and um, addiction. And therefore, I do believe that we are going to have an increasing brewing backlash against social media. We already have regulations, not only in Australia, but around the world, this regulation against big tech and how much data that they have have of us and how much they're exploiting it for their own benefit. So that is the regulatory backlash that we need to be very aware of if you are invested in some of these digital media and tech companies.
1: All right. So now I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit. You talked about your coverage earlier. Do you have a top pick from the companies that you cover here in Australia?
2: Yeah. um, By far, uh, the most attractive stock in my coverage right now is a telecommunication company called TPG Telecom. People will know them more as the operator of Vertify on the mobile side and on TPG and IINet on the broadband side. But they also do a lot of um, corporate telecommunications. It is, the shares are trading at 25% discount to our $7.40 valuation. And in a nutshell, um, we like it because mobile prices are finally rising after years of intense competition and heavy discounting. There are benefits to that 5G, not just on the revenue side, but on the cost side that I think the market is underestimating. There are still a lot of cost outs to come, not just from the synergy, from the benefit of that um, merger between Vodafone and um, TPG, but also just generally TPG is doing its own T22, which Telstra has been doing for the past few years. So they're on that um, cost transformation journey too. And so you combine all of that, we do see quite decent earnings growth coming through over the next three years.
1: And just when we think about, would we think about the business overall, and I guess this is any telecom, yeah, what are the drivers? You obviously talked about cost and price. Are there other drivers to those businesses?
2: Yeah, so that's true. So on the... um, On the price side, yeah, I think we underestimate just how deflationary mobile prices have been over the past few years. And that's not a surprise in hindsight, because whenever you go from one G to the next, and then that next G matures, which is 4G, when it starts maturing, price is the only lever you have, because basically everybody's got 4G. And therefore, price is the only sort of battleground. But as that G goes on to the next G, you have a natural buoyancy to that price because it's giving you more speed, it's giving you more data allowance. And even if the prices don't go up to compensate for the billions that they use to roll out 5G, the cost actually goes down per, let's say, per gigabyte. Cost actually goes down 25 to 30% for every um, data that you transmit. So the Jaws start opening up positively instead of in terms of higher prices and lower costs, and that happens every single time wireless goes from 1G to the next. And I think we're seeing just the start of it. And just two days ago, Telstra raised its prices on its mobile plans by seven percent, and they'll continue to do this. Now, Mark, you'll probably be asking, but cost of Cost of living pressures are rising, interest rates are rising, mortgage stress is increasing. That is all true. And telco products are no um, no more um, immune to that. But relatively speaking, I must say paying 60 to $70 a month for your mobile service, I would consider that an essential service in this day and age, which goes back to our whole discussion about digital media and how addicted we are to them. So... I think before consumers complain about ra- rising prices in mobile prices, just remember, number one, you've got nowhere to turn. There's only three operators in Australia. You've got nowhere to turn. And Optus and Vodafone, both are raising prices. And number two, just think about how much time you spend on that mobile for your 60 or to $70 a month and ask yourself, do you think it's worth it? And uh, I certainly can't do it without them.
1: Yeah. I mean, you would have to look at people on the train or daydream.
2: Yeah. I think these days I'm the only person who's actually daydreaming, which can can be a bit creepy to um, strangers, I think, when I'm just um, looking around. and.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, there we go. Well, you're trying to think up the next bet you're going to put on.
2: Exactly. Yeah.
1: All right. Well, we covered a lot of different things today. So everything from social media to your sports wagering to the secret to a good marriage. So... And your and your best pick TPG. So, I think that uh, I think that'll do that do it for today. So, thank you very much for joining us. I really appreciate it. Thank you, and thank you all for listening. We would love any comments or feedback in your podcast app, and of course, my email address is in the show notes. If you have any questions for me or for Brian,
0: this episode of Investing Compass is brought to you by Milford.
1: Milford's talented and globally experienced investment team aim to deliver strong, long-term returns while managing downside risks. They also invest in the same funds as their clients. Learn more and see the Milford Fund's product disclosure statements and target market determinations at milfordasset.com.au. Any advice in this podcast is general advice or regulated financial advice under New Zealand law prepared by morningstar australasia proprietary limited and or morningstar research limited without reference to your financial objectives situations or needs you should consider the advice in light of these matters and any relevant product disclosure statement before making any decision to invest to obtain advice for your own situation contact the financial advisor